If you guys would go ahead and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 12. Um, this word phrase that we say, never, never let me be ashamed, talking about God's dealing with us and how awesome he is. And no matter what happens in our life, that we shouldn't be ashamed because we know that God has his best for us. So 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 12. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus. I love this. What Paul says here is, first of all, he says, don't be ashamed, okay? The psalmist is telling us also not to be ashamed. And he says, why? Because he's a prisoner of the Lord. The testimony that he has gotten from God is the reason why he's not going to be ashamed. And God has provided everything that he needs. Paul is telling us that he is um, suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. You know, we heard tonight, um, Joanna, that she's suffering because of the gospel of God, of what's going on in the schools today. And moving on here in verse 10, it says, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Isn't that awesome, right? That Jesus came, he abolished death, and he brought us life, that eternal life that we're going to be able to expect. For, I was, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. So you guys all have spiritual gifts. Everybody has a gift that they can utilize to be able to serve the Lord some way, somehow. And that's what he's telling us here. Verse 12, for this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted him until that day. I think it's awesome here that, that in the Psalms, back over to our text, he says, in you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. You're the one that I run to. Never let me be ashamed. No matter what I do, you're always going to guard your name. And so therefore, I have nothing to worry about, okay? Because I can't do anything that's going to cause God to be ashamed. So why would I be ashamed? Okay, that's the power that we have in him. Uh, the next verse here, I want you guys to turn to Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. Philippians 3, 7 to 9. In your righteousness, deliver me in your righteousness. And what we're going to see here is this plumb line that God has given to us. God's righteousness is that plumb line that we use in order to decide, well, what is right, what is wrong, what is straight, and what is crooked. Okay, if you guys are familiar with a plumb line, it's basically what a carpenter would use. If you put a weight on the end of it, it would drop down. It would be perfectly straight because of the way God created this earth. And then you can do the same thing if you want to go this way with water in a tube. Okay, you take one piece of water over here, another in the tube over here, and you put a line, you mark it up, and once it gets up to that point, you have a straight line. Go to Lake Powell sometime and just look at the rocks okay, and how the water line is just perfectly level all the way around. So what we're talking about here is God's righteousness. He sets the standard. We don't set the standard. So in, in our text, as we're reading in Philippians 3, verses 7 to 9, as soon as I get there, says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. 
More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I suffer the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So, you know, the law gives us this little idea here, you know, you should not steal, you should not commit adultery, you should not have other gods, um, you should not covet. We know them all. And the rich young ruler, remember him, right? He comes to the Lord and he asks him, well, I've done all those things. What else do I need to do? Well, Jesus gives him a little test. Well, go sell all the things that you have and prove to me. So what did he do? He coveted, he lied. You know, he did all these things that he said that he wasn't doing. So in all reality, he wasn't testing himself up to God's righteousness and God's standard. He was setting himself up according to his own standard. And so that's something that we don't want to do. So as we see God's righteousness and how God's righteousness delivers us, verse 2, incline your ear to me, rescue me quickly, be to me a rock of strength. When we're looking at that incline your ear to me, it's like this. This is a neat picture of God and how God is listening to us. But more than that, it's more that God is bowing down his ear and he's listening to you intently. He's desiring to hear what you have to say. To me, that is such a great picture. You know, sometimes, sometimes we want to have things happen, happen fast, don't we? But there's nothing wrong with what David's doing here. He says, rescue me quickly. David is in distress. Rescue me quickly. Who doesn't want to be rescued from distress, right? And so that's what he's asking God to do. Be to me a rock of strength. But I also remember in the Bible that it tells us that sometimes we got to wait on the Lord right? There's got to also be that, that waiting time. But the idea here is that in David's distress, in our distress, it's not wrong to ask the Lord to rescue us quickly from the distress that we're in. Be to me a rock of strength, a stronghold to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Um, go to Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30, and we're going to look at a little animal here. It was a, when we were in Israel... It was kind of neat watching this little guy. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 24, and we'll also read 26. But I want you to pay attention to verse 24 because that's going to tie everything in. Four things are small on the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. And then you jump down to verse 26. The Shephanim are not mighty people, yet they make their houses in the rocks. And so we went to Israel. I saw this Shephanim or this Hyrax or this Coney or this um, rock badger is what they're called. And this, this particular rock badger was sitting in a tree. And it was a small tree. And he's just sitting there, just, you know, doing his thing. And um, so I'm thinking, something's odd about that rock badger. And so we go on, and we're walking in through En Gedi. We're seeing all these caves, you know, the place perfect for hiding. That's the reason why David used that place to hide and run from Saul. So the idea behind the rock badger is this. Um, He's a very shy animal. He's not aggressive. He doesn't have claws or sharp teeth. And they live in community, kind of like a church, right? And the cool part about it is it, while they're working in community, when they go out and they forage for food, they'll go out and they'll take some sentries and they'll put sentries out and they'll be the guard post. And then if there's danger that it comes in, these sentries will go ahead and, and start shrieking 
And so all of the rock badgers will run and go into the rock. And that's where they're safe. They're clean animals, right? They're, they're just kind of like us. We have a bathroom inside, okay? They, and it's away from our sleeping quarters, right? They have a bathroom that's away from their sleeping quarters. Think about the average rat, right? The rat, well, not so much. They pee and they do their thing right in their, in their bed. Kind of a gross analogy, I know, but it works. So the idea that we want to get from this rock badger is basically to learn from this rock badger. Anytime that this rock badger gets into trouble, where does he go? Runs to the rock. And that's the idea that the, that the psalmist has given us here in, in verse 31, or chapter 31. He says, you are my stronghold. Save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, basically, is the reason why he's saying this. So let's, let's go to another scripture here. Another scripture that we want to go to, um, we're talking about for your name's sake, is in Proverbs uh, chapter 30, verse 7 to 9. You just flip on over. It's just right on the next page, probably. Right on the next page. I love this scripture. This is one of the things that I've asked of the Lord. It says, two things I've asked of you. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I do not be full and deny you, and say, who is the Lord, or that I not be in want and steal, and do what? Profane the name of my God. So when we're looking at this idea of uh, for your namesake, it's for the sake of God's own honor. He's not going to allow us to defame his name. Oh, you can try, but in all reality, in the end, you're never going to win. Okay, God always wins. Just keep that in mind, right? And we know that, right? We know that, but sometimes we have to be reminded of it. And so as we move on, go back to our text. For your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. I mean, who, who else do we want to lead us and guide us? And that's the reason why he will lead us and guide us, and he'll always lead us and guide us in the right direction. Verse 4, you will pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me, for you are my strength. Do you notice a, um, a theme that's going on here? Right? He's always going back to the fact that God is his strength and that God will help him. And this idea of this net is something that hunters would use. They would lay this net down, they would camouflage it, make it to a way where the animal or the person, if you're catching slaves, uh, wouldn't be able to see the net. And so when the an animal came, they wouldn't see it. They'd be snatched up into it. And that's the picture that David has given to us here when he says that they have laid a net secretly for him, all these people that are conspiring against him. But notice, who's going to pull him out? God is going to pull him out. The net that his enemies have secretly laid for him. For you are my strength. Verse 5, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me. You guys have heard that before right? That's what Jesus said on the cross, right? When he was dying, into your hand, I commit my spirit. Stephen, when he died, into your hand, I commit my spirit. Those guys were doing it at death, but David is doing it at life. And he's doing it at life, and it's a guide for us too. David is committing his life to the Lord. He looks up and he says, hey, I commit my life to you, Lord. Into your hand, I commit my spirit. Why? Because he understood that he had salvation, okay? He had salvation, although Jesus wasn't the salvation that he had because Jesus hadn't come yet, the point of it being that God provided a way for him, okay? God provided a way. You have ransomed me. What does that mean? Well, you have redeemed me. There's that salvation again, right? 
O Lord, God of truth. And we look at John uh, chapter 18, verse 37, it tells us that Jesus is the truth. That's the reason he came to this earth, to testify to the truth, right? And so we, as we move on here, verse 6, he kind of changes direction. He says, I hate those who regard vain idols. It's not that he hates the people. He just hates what they're doing. What are they doing? They're regarding vain idols. They're worshiping idols. And so David says, I hate what they're doing, but I trust in the Lord. Verse 7, I will rejoice and be glad in your loving kindness because you have seen my affliction. You have known the troubles of my soul. You know, Jesus, when he came to this earth, he went through the same stuff that we go through, right? Jesus should be that example that we're all following. And, and, and look at it like this. Wouldn't you want to follow a God who has seen your afflictions, a God who can relate to the troubles of your soul, the, adver the adversities that you have gone to? Yes, I, I think so. I would. So that's the reason why David says that he can rejoice and be glad in God's loving kindness and in his mercy. Verse 8, and you have not given me over into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a large place. That verse 8 there says, you have not given me over in the hand of the enemy. I think of a couple of places in scripture that David was not given over into the hand of the enemy. One of them was when he came and he gave food to his brothers, right? When Goliath and the Philistines and the Israelites were over here and the Israelites were afraid of the Philistines because they had this big guy. Well, David said, well, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Why is this guy talking about the God of all creation? Why are you guys allowing this guy to taunt you? And so David, of course, we know the story, gets his stones and he wipes out the giant, cuts off his head, end of that. The other, other two, as we see in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 18, you don't have to go there, but God delivers uh, Saul to David. Remember the cave of Adullam? David's in there with all his 300 men. I have a question. How do you keep 300 men quiet? <laughs> you know, that, that was a tough one right there. So they go in the cave of Adullam, everything's quiet, and of all the caves, why did he pick that one? Now, couldn't you have gone to another cave and kind of relieved yourself there? But no, you choose my cave. I have a thought on that. The other instance was God delivered Saul once again into David's hand, and David was going into Saul's camp, remember? Saul was camped up there, and so David comes down, and he takes Saul's spear. He also takes his water jug, and then he removes himself to go to the other side of the, of the mountain, and he yells out to him, hey, who's supposed to protect the king? And of course, what happened with these couple of events is God was able to um, allow Saul to have a different attitude towards David. Okay, so that, that's what happens when you allow God to fight your battles for you. I like that. <laughs> that gives me comfort. You know, when I'm going through distresses, when things are going on in my life, I mean, I don't know if I would want to be on something like this, and I'm at a 3,000-foot cliff, and there's raging water with crocodiles down there. I think I would much rather be set up on a wide area. And I just see the love of God right there, of him taking David and just giving him that picture. Hey, look, I'm pulling you out of this, and I'm setting you 
right here. There's nothing that you have to worry about, okay? I've got your back. Hmm. Verse 8 again. It just amazes me that it correlates to verse 15. Because in verse 15, we'll get there, but I just want to kind of go over there. It says, deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. And I look at verse 8, and I look at those two things there, and David is assured that God will rescue him. Verse 9, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. So we see here that these first eight verses, David is praying to God. And I, what I get from it is that in, when David's praying, he's going through all this stuff. He's praying in an expectant way, thinking that God is going to deliver him from whatever it is that he's in. Even though he has to go through those trials, he knows that God will, will, will be gracious to him. That's why he says it, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted away from grief, my soul and my body also. His eye wasted away, crying. I mean, just weeping because of the grief that was in. His body and his soul are so heavy. His heart is broken. It's downcast. He can feel the pain of his bones, right? And so my, verse 10, for my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing, my, my strength has failed. When we look at that word spent, um, that's an important word because it's not something like, you know, well, I spent some time over at my friend's house. You know, or I went somewhere, I spent the day over here. No, what he's talking about in this spent is, is like destroyed, he's consumed. So if you look at this and you say, well, my life is destro destroyed with sorrow, my life is consumed with sorrow, and my years with sighing, and my strength has failed. And so the cool part about that is that David understands that even though his life is, is going downhill fast. His body is hurting that he can always look back. Be gracious to me, verse 9, O Lord, for I am in distress. He says, but I, in verse 6, but I will trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your loving kindness. Verse 4, for you are my strength. There's so many places where David encourages us to go straight to God's word, to go to straight to what God wants for us. And so... When we look at this here, uh, 1 John 1, 5 to 10, you guys know it. Okay, go ahead and turn there, 1 John 1, verses 5 to 10. We look at this, it says, my strength has failed because of my iniquity. Iniquity equating to sin, and my body was wasted away. So David gives us a reason here of why his body was in pain, and that was because of his iniquity. And when we look in uh, 1 John Chapter 5, I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Does that comprehend in your head? No darkness at all. He is light. You can't even cast a shadow around God. He is perfect light. And so if there's no darkness in God, there means that there's no sin there also, right? If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Keep that word lie in the back of your head because God is, um, we're going to find that out in the, in the psalm that's mentioned quite a few times. 
But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What a cool thing to think about what Jesus did on that cross. How many of you guys think about that often? You know, yeah? I mean, you should. That's something I think about every single day. You know, that's the reason why I get up in the morning because of what Jesus did on the cross. You know, I, I think about the crown that was put on. I think about the beard that was plucked out of him. I think about how he was hit in the face and then ask, well, who did that? I think about the lashings that he took on his back and then how he stuck him on that cross and the splinters just going in and how they ripped the robe off of him before they did that. I think about the nails that were put into his, his wrists and his feet and how he hung up there, oh, by the way, naked, okay? He wasn't up there with some loincloth on. Okay, they didn't care. They didn't care if your humility was tore down. Okay, that's what Jesus did for us. I think about that every day. And so, and so when I look at this, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Guys, there are people out there that believe that they don't sin anymore. It's amazing to me. And it says it right here in black and white that we do. And if we say that we don't, we're just deceiving ourselves, right? But here's the good part. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. There's that word again. And his word is not in us. So back to our text. Because of my iniquity, because of the sins that I have created and for whatever reason, whether they were caused by God, um, bringing something into my life, and then, uh, but you know what? We can't be tempted by God, can we? Right? God can't tempt us to do evil. We do that because we're fallen creatures. And that happened in the garden in the beginning, right? We rebelled against God. We rejected him. He gave us the perfect environment to live in, and we decided we wanted the sewer. Okay? But David says he understands that because of my iniquity, my body has wasted away. And he goes up into the upper verses here from 9 to 10. He also says the same thing. His eyes are grieving. They're, they're, he's weeping. His soul and his body, his life is spent with sorrow. It's in destruction. And my years with sighing, my strength has failed because of my iniquity. And my body has wasted away. The other thing that we should be doing um, every day is coming before the Lord and finding out, hey, you know what? Have I, have I done something that I shouldn't have been doing? And, you know, David tells us that in Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful or wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. To me, that's a good, a good way to get yourself straight with God, to get yourself back in that relationship that we need to be in, right? Because all of us sometimes will never lose our, our position in Christ. Okay, that's secure. But we can lose that relationship sometimes, right? That's what that sin does. It creates that little barrier. God stays right where he's at, and we just go ahead and we do this number here. We need to get back to him, cling back onto that Lord. Back to our text. Verse 11, because of all my adversaries, I've become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me 
in the street, flee from me. Wow, how'd you like to be David, right? You get all these adversaries, these guys that are plotting to scheme you. Your, your enemies are coming against you. And then you come in, you look down, and he says, now, not only are my adversaries, have I become a reproach to them, but now to my neighbors, those people that are living next door to me, I've become a reproach to them also. And I become an object to a dread of the acquaintances, those people that I see in the street. I'm walking down the street and somebody sees me and, they, and then they go the other direction. They don't have anything to do with me. Could you imagine if that was you, right? You're walking down the street, your neighbors. Verse 12, I am forgotten as a dead man out of mind. I am like a broken vessel. Dead people, this picture that David's giving to us, it's like somebody dies, and we grieve. We go to the funeral, and um, as time goes on, we end up forgetting about them, don't we? Right? They're buried in some cemetery somewhere. We gave them a nice marble tombstone. It has all the information on it. But as time goes on, the tombstone starts getting weathered. Sometimes I've seen tombstones doing this. Some guy would come by, I don't know, maybe 50 years from then. He would look at it and go, huh, and then just walk away. So what has happened? This is, this is what David is giving a picture of. He's like a dead man to people. He's like a broken vessel, a piece of pottery that has been broken. But the neat part is this. For us as Christians, we're never forgotten, right? God never forgets about us. As Christians, we're never a broken vessel to him, okay? We might think that. I hear this a lot, that people, they think that because they do one thing wrong, that now God doesn't love them. I say, are you a Christian? Well, yeah. Have you accepted Christ as Savior and Lord? Well, sure. Then why are you saying that? Don't you know that God loves you with a love that you can't even comprehend? right? But yet they want to go ahead, and I don't know why they do it. It's beyond me. Verse 13, for I've heard the slander of many. Terror is on every side. People were slandering him. We saw it in verse 11, his adversaries. They were making jokes about him, right? They were, they were bad-talking him. And what that ended up doing is it caused fear on every side of him. And while they took counsel against me, they schemed to take away my life. All these people are plotting to kill him. How are we going to get rid of David, Saul, and his army? What do we got to do? 3,000 men to go get one guy with 300 men. That's amazing to me. But I like the way that he changes it here in verse 14. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. That's an attitude that... Um, we also as Christians got to have. My times are in your hand. Lord, do with me whatever you want to do. Okay, whether you want to decide that I'm going to live for 15 years or I'm going to live for two years or two days. You know, what do I need to do for you, Lord? How can I serve you? That's the idea that David is saying here. My times are in your hands. Why? Because for me, no matter what's going on, if we take a look at this verse 14, as for me, I trust in you. As for me, because my eyes are wasted away with grief. As for me, because my life is spent with sorrow. As for me, because my strength has failed, because of my iniquity, my body is wasted away because all my adversaries, even my neighbors and my family, my acquaintances, they've all rejected me. I have been forgotten as a dead man out of mind. 
I've heard the slander, terrors on every side while they took counsel against They want to take my life. But as for me, but as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Do with me whatever you want to do with me, is what he's telling us. And there's that, that verse again, deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Go to Numbers chapter uh, 6. Numbers chapter 6. And we're going to look at this blessing that comes to us. Numbers chapter 6, verses 25 and 27. I'm sorry, 23 to 27 is where we'll go. You guys have heard this before. Pastor Chuck used to sing it. I don't know if any of you guys remember Pastor Chuck and you'd sing this to the crowd. You'll recognize it when we read it, okay? Speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, now, now, you're, now you hear Pastor Chuck singing, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and I will bless them. So we see here that there's a blessing that is coming on. There's a five-part blessing. First of all, he tells us that he will bless and protect them. God will bless and protect them. And not only that, but God is pleased with them because he's smiling on them, okay? Isn't it cool that God of all creation is smiling on you and he's pleased with you? The other thing we look at is that God is merciful and he's compassionate with us. Next thing we see is that God shows favor to his people. He shows approval to us. And the best part, this is our best part. <laughs> Everything with God is the best part, right? What's your favorite scripture? Well, the Bible. <laughs> um, the best part is the peace, right? The peace, the shalom that he gives to us in every situation. Back to our text. Verse 16, make your face to shine upon your servant. Save me in your loving kindness and in your mercy. There is again that understanding, once again, that David is all in all is God. And there's nobody that can save him except for God. Verse 17, let me not be put to shame, O Lord, for I call upon you. As we saw in verse 1, we saw, let me never be ashamed. It's the same idea right there. Okay, do not... Let me be put to shame, O Lord, for I call upon you. Your name will be standing up once again. There's nothing that anybody can do to me. Okay, so I'm being persecuted. I'm a Christian. People are going to talk bad about me. That's okay. You know what? Because joy comes in the morning, right? Say what you want right now. I've, I, can't, I can't tell you how many people that I've come in contact with, they say, well, you're a Christian and this is happening to you. Uh, where's that God of love? I said, don't worry. He's still there. You just wait. You just wait. And as time goes on and we're, we're moving along with God, God always comes through and he always picks up out of the miry clay. He always sets up on that, that solid ground right there. Always. I've never, ever seen God fail. Never. Let me, put to shame, let me not put to shame, O Lord, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them be silent and shield. This idea here of let the wicked, wicked be put to shame is one that um, give them what they deserve, Lord. You know, if they want to worship those idols, if they want to reject you, give them what they want. And that's exactly what God will do because he's a just God, okay? He is a just God. I like this idea of Sheol. It was talked about a few weeks back, that place of torment before, you know, Gehenna, 
or the lake of fire. And so the way that I understand it in my, my brain is, and I've heard it this way, is that Sheol or Hades is the county jail and Gehenna is the federal penitentiary, okay? So you're waiting in the county jail for the judge to come along and give you that sentence. And depending on what you did, you end up going to the penitentiary. Well, everybody that is in Sheol gets to go to the penitentiary. Okay, there's no, there's no out there. They're done. So that's why it's important, like when we're praying tonight, you, got, you guys know people that need the Lord. Gosh, you got to go talk to them. You know, time is short. I don't know when Jesus will come back to you. Soon, soon, right? And he's not a date setter either, but he's correct, soon. Moving on, verse 18. So here's where I said, you know, listen to that word lie. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak arrogantly against the righteous. The idea here that if we, if we read in Jude, go to Jude chapter one. That's a trick question, right? <laughs> Jude. Jude 15. Because so I've had guys go, well, there's no 15 chapters. Well, so Jude 15. To execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him, meaning God. There's a lot of ungodly things going on there, right? You've heard that word ungodly, the sinners. And here's what they're doing. They're speaking lies against God. They're defaming God's name. And so we look at, uh, we look at another one in Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19. Proverbs 6, verse 16 to 19. You meant, I, I showed you, we're not going to read it again, but I showed that one to you, right? Um, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. I like that word abomination. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and ha hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil. Here it is again, a false witness who utters lies and one who spreads strife among brothers. You know, anytime that something gets mentioned twice in the scripture, and it's in the same paragraph, you should probably pay attention to it, right? So there's many times in here that God is going to deal with people who are liars. How do I know? Well, if I go to Revelation chapter 21, verse 8, it tells me. And I'll just read it to you, okay? Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. It says, For the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars... Their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is a second death. So apparently God is not too happy about lying. Apparently he's grieved when we lie. Apparently, he just flat out doesn't like it. Okay, and um, so maybe we should stop doing it. It's one of the hardest things to stop doing. If you, if you really, if you're honest with yourself, I mean, it goes along with this pride and contempt down here. Those people that speak arrogantly against the righteous with pride and contempt. You know, that guy that gets out there, that gal that gets out there, and it's all about them. They don't have anything to do with God. It's about what can I get in this world? How many people can I rip off? How many people can I get to follow me to make me look good? 
In the meanwhile, what they're doing with that contempt part is they are bringing them down lower and they're taking advantage of them. Okay, that's the, that's the thing that he's talking about here. God, don't let these people lie. Don't allow them to speak arrogantly against me or your people, um, against the righteous with pride and contempt. Verse 19, how great is your goodness. I love how David just goes back and forth. You know, he's talking about the good. He's talking about the bad, but he always brings God up to that level where he needs to be because we never want to bring him down to ours. Okay, don't ever go up to his level, right? Because you'll never get there. You can strive to get up there. That's a good thing to do, but you'll never get there. That's a cool part about being a Christian, right? You can strive to get as high as you need to be with God, but you'll never get there. That's why it's an eternity. That's what I love about eternity, right? There's always going to be that time where we're going to say, and, oh man, another one, and, oh, cool. You know, there's going to be so much neat stuff that's going to go on in heaven, and that's where I want to be. But how great is your goodness, God, which you have stored up for those who fear you. You're, you have stored up. He has an abundant supply. He's stored it for us, okay? For those who fear you, for those who are in awe and reverence of you, that's who he's storing up for. It's us. Those people have accepted Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Those of you that haven't, well, what are you waiting for, right? If you don't know the Lord, what are you waiting for? Which you have wrought for those who take refuge in you before the sons of men. So this idea here is that God is not ashamed to pour out his blessings of goodness on us. He's not ashamed to do it in front of anybody, okay? Before the sons of men, before people, he will pour out on you. Why? So his name will go ahead and be glorified once again. We take refuge in him. We hide them. God hides us in verse 20 in the secret place of his presence from conspiracies of man. There it is, that conspiracy again, those guys that are plotting against them. God hides us as if God, the picture here is that God actually has taken us and bringing us into his presence. So therefore he can look at us face to face and encourage us and let us know, I got you. Okay, there's nothing's gonna happen to you. That's the idea that he's giving you. You keep them secretly in a shelter or a pavilion from the strife of tongues. God will, prevent, will protect you. Allow him to do that. This strife of tongues, I was looking at that, and I thought in my mind, I go, you know what? You guys ever hear of, uh, what's it called, um, Facebook? <laughs> so this Facebook thing gets going, right? And I'm coaching um, junior high football and wrestling at, at Phoenix Christian. And I, I can remember a friend of mine comes up. He goes, oh, man, oh, man, you got to get on Facebook. It's the greatest thing. And I go, well, what is it? So he tells me. It's this thing where you get on there, and everybody's talking about everybody, and and they're telling all their secrets and all this stuff. And, and I can tell you what this guy's done over here and what he's done. And so why would I want to do that? And he says, because then you'll, I said, I go, look, I have enough on my plate where I don't need to find out what people think about me. I don't really care, okay? And, and it's the thing, I care about what God thinks about me. I do, I really do. And the thing about it is, by not worrying about the strife of tongues and put myself in that place where God needs it to be, me to be, it allows me to have the freedom to do whatever I need to do for the Lord. I don't have to worry about whether someone in this room thinks I'm doing it wrong or I'm sweeping the floor this way when it should be done this way. It doesn't matter to me, okay? I'm doing it the way, if I'm serving the Lord, I'm doing it the way that God has given me the gift to do, right? And you need to get before the Lord and ask him, Lord, how do you want me to do this thing? He'll show you. He'll bring people in your life, but don't be worried about it, right? 
Keep me secretly in a shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, verse 21, for he has made marvelous his loving kindness to me in a besieged city. So he's likened himself all the great things that God is doing to him in a besieged city, a city that has been uh, desolate, a city that has probably been bombed or, or racked, okay? And the idea here is that David is just looking at all the cool stuff that God has done, all the marvelous things that he's done in his loving kindness and his mercy. Verse 22, as for me, I set in my alarm or my haste. I am cut off from before your eyes. So David was uh, a little worried here. I want you guys to turn to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 23. 1 Samuel chapter 23. And the idea that we're looking at is, I set in my alarm, my fear and my apprehension um, that David had. Okay, so my thought, <laughs> my thought, um, you know, David was being pursued by Saul, right? He's gone through all this stuff. And how in the world was Saul always able to catch him and find out where he's at? I know that there are spies out there and stuff, but David was a pretty crafty individual, right? My, my thought is that God allowed Saul to find David so that David could grow in his walk with the Lord so that God could allow David to go through the things that he needed to be the king of Israel, to be the man, or in your guys' cases, women, that God wanted him to be, okay? In David's case, the man, right? So verse 24, chapter 23, verse 24. So they arose and went to Ziph before Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David, and he came down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard it, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were surrounding David and his men to seize him. But God, wait, no, but a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid on the land. So Saul returned from pursuing David and went to meet the Philistines. Therefore, they call that place the Rock of Escape. Hey, God intervened, right? God intervened. And so that's why my, my observation for me is correct, that God allowed David to go what he went through in order to be the king. So we'll go ahead and we'll stop right there. Brad told me, he says, if something happens where um, it doesn't work out, you get finished, then you can finish next week. I said, okay. So uh, with that said, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we give you praise. We give you honor. We give you thanks. Because Lord, even as we study this tonight, we see what you have done for David, that you provided everything that he needed. Even though he went through the despair and the heartache and the physical strain that was put on him, even though he had people that were against him, Lord, you never left him. You were always there with him. So, Lord, I pray for the people in this room today, right now, that as they leave this place, that they would be encouraged to go on out in this world and serve you with their whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. And, Lord, your word tells us, if you love me, you will obey my commandments, Lord, that we would be people that would do your will and do your work. We praise you, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.